0: This year's presidential election, we are frequently reminded, is unlike any other in our lifetime. Whether you see it as a battle for the soul of the nation or a means of maintaining, despite our deep polarization, a policy platform you in large part resonate with, for many voters, and in particular religious voters, one factor this cycle looms large, the courts. And the latest Supreme Court term did, in fact, include a number of cases where religious liberty was in the balance from Bostock to Espinoza to Our Lady of Guadalupe to Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania. Today on the podcast, we talk about several of those consequential rulings with two policy experts. One on federal and state education policy and the manner in which rulings by the high court affect it. And another focused on legislation at the state policy level, impacting the balancing of rights between traditional religious Americans and LGBT Americans. In his first three and a half years, President Trump has appointed 201 federal judges, including not only Supreme Court Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, but also throughout our 13 regional appeals courts and 91 district courts. That's approximately one quarter of all federal US judges. And when one cannot help but think at least one more Supreme Court vacancy will arise before the 2024 presidential election, I suspect this dynamic—the future of religious liberty—weighs on the hearts and minds of more Americans of faith than many pundits or political journalists realize. Which brings us to a pair of first-rate experts. Andy Smarrick is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where his work focuses on education, civil society, and the principles of American conservatism. He's a commissioner with the state of Maryland's Higher Education Commission, was a 2007-8 White House fellow who served on the Domestic Policy Council in the George W. Bush administration, and is an education policy veteran of two think tanks, AEI and R Street, who's also served as a past president of the Maryland State Board of Education and as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Education. He's published four books examining the future of public education in American life, the role of philanthropy in expanding student potential, key changes in rural education, and a renaissance in Catholic schools. Joining Andy today is Tim Schultz, president of the First Amendment Partnership Center, where he directs national and state policy advocacy, builds alliances with wide-ranging faith communities throughout the United States, and works to educate and guide key influencers on religious freedom issues. He's collaborated directly with more than 30 state legislatures to foster bipartisan coalitions that can strengthen religious freedom in practical ways at the state level. Tim has testified before 16 state legislatures, as well as Congress, and he's a frequent commentator on these themes in national media outlets. In many ways, today's conversation stems from an ongoing question the court sought to answer in the Espinoza case.
1: If the government has a program that is going to, or a benefit that's gonna be open to a wide array of non-governmental bodies, is it acceptable for the government to exclude religious organizations?
0: We also talk about the origins of public education in America, and when choice and charters entered the fray, important alliances within the Supreme Court, and how its key triads and quads go beyond the stereotypical language of liberal versus conservative justices. How many of the justices currently see a healthy tension between religious liberty priorities and the public legal rights of gay Americans, and the distinct space inhabited by religious and private schools, which even if only 10% of all K-12 students provide unique public benefit in contemporary American life. Let's dive right in. Enjoy the conversation. Well, hey, Andy. Hey, Tim. Thanks for joining today amidst conventions and full, full life. I hope we can talk a little bit about religious liberty, about Espinosa and schooling and about some of the tensions that are inherent in that larger conversation. But first, Andy Smarrick, you know, you have, we've just heard about your bio. You've had, I think, seven government jobs. You've worked at a number of think tanks in recent years, now at the Manhattan Institute, and you have this letter-writing campaign. What's that about in the midst of, of COVID?
1: Yeah, every year I try to do something good for a New Year's resolution, like go to daily mass or try to do some sort of like public service thing. And this year I decided I had been spending too much time on email and texting, other kinds of social media. So I thought, you know, I'm reaching that phase in life where I have to be mindful of being a middle aged guy and needing to build up like real connections with people. Unfortunately, during our age, data shows that that's when we start to lose connections and get atomized. So I decided I was going to handwrite, try to write at least one letter per day over the course of the entire year to various people and see what that was like. So I'm ahead of pace. I've handwritten as of last night, 399 letters and gotten something like 125 in reply. And it's been wonderful. If you ever want to have a podcast just on that, it's neat what you learn about other people and yourself when you just slow down and you're not texting 20 words but instead you're thinking I need half an hour of quiet and a pen and a paper and collect my thoughts it's been wonderful it's like a form of meditation and i don't know therapy all at once it's been it's been terrific i recommend it to anyone well, we'll
0: be sure to link to your commentary piece in the show notes. And in some sense, this conversation about Espinoza comes from that, since you, I think, referenced that in the most recent of mine. Not that I've been perfect in response, but this is at least, at least a start. What's the line from Arthur Brooks about men in their mid-40s and their... They say that their best friend is their wife, and like uh, half or less of those wives say that their best friend is their husband. Something like this about friendship.
1: Correct. Yeah. Women have a tendency over their lives, especially as they get older, to accumulate more friends and men do the opposite. And I think there's like this U-shaped curve of especially men's happiness where it reaches its bottom in the mid to late 40s. And part of this is a function of being atomized and
2: disconnected and a lot, a lot of other things. You may be referring, I mean, there's a lot of research on this, but that's the great book by Jonathan Rauch, our friend at the Brookings Institution, who wrote a book about this a few years ago, for which I was interviewed and for which I was quoted in. And I I myself had a U-shaped happiness curve. He, he actually says that that for men, the, the, the low point tends to be around, the median low point tends to be around age 42. And then it starts to sort of slow, but gradual ascendancy. But one of the things he and I talked about was friendship and how many men at that age just don't have that many friends i have was one of the lucky ones i think i was pulled out of my lower point by my good friendships including with our our host today so yeah, friendship support. Well, great to have you both and
0: have you guys meeting. And maybe we can start with the Espinoza case, which I think Andy has written a wonderful piece about in the dispatch. Andy, maybe you could tell us what that decision says about where the court is right now and where we are with respect to some of the questions about religion and faith-based schools, which Tim works on full-time in terms of religious liberty and gay rights, larger conversation that we'll get into. But your first sentence says, the decision was a significant win for advocates of school choice, and more broadly... For those who believe faith-based institutions should be able to more fully engage in government programs.
1: Why? Okay, so beginning at the beginning, you have to realize that American public education has always been defined by what we call exclusive territorial franchises, government monopolies. Public education was run for 150 years by a local school board, and that superintendent in the administration owned and operated all public schools within the geographic area. That's what we thought public education was. And so All of the Supreme Court cases really that we're dealing with in the middle of the 20th century with religious issues and schools were in that context. And so we started seeing the separation of public schools from things like teacher-led prayer or reading from the Bible and so on. The gist here is that when you have a government program that's a monopoly and you have compulsory education laws, the concern is with the first clause of the First Amendment's religious principles, which is about establishment. If you have a government monopoly and you're forcing kids to go to school, you really can't have religion in there because it's almost like the government is establishing a religion. That's how the thinking went. Things changed with chartering and private school choice programs beginning in the 1990s, when all of a sudden you had a wide array of different types of bodies being able to run schools either as public schools or within a broadly understood public education system. So this is everything from charter schools to vouchers and tax credits and education savings accounts. So that's like the broad background here. With the Espinoza case, there was this issue of what's called a tuition tax credit program in a state where the state decides it will give a tax credit to individuals. And in some states, it's individuals and corporations who give money to nonprofit organizations that hand out scholarships to kids to go to private schools. Seems pretty straightforward. Because of the Zellman court case in 2002, there is no federal real issue with this. We can come back to that if you'd like to. But the state in question here had what's called a Blaine Amendment, a no aid provision. So to make a long story short, the state created this tax credit program allowing kids to go to private schools. But another state body said, yeah, but they can't go to religious schools. And then ultimately ends up in the Supreme Court. And the ultimate decision there, or the ultimate question there is, if the government has a program that is going to, or a benefit that's going to be open to a wide array of non-governmental bodies, is it acceptable for the government to exclude religious organizations, to single them out in particular for exclusion because of establishment clause reasons? And what the court over time has been trending in this direction, thanks to a previous court case called Trinity Lutheran, but then really making it clear in this case, is saying that this is Less of an establishment clause concern and more of a free expression clause concern. If you have a government entity that's a monopoly, you got to be concerned about religion being involved. But if you have a wide array of bodies that are involved in a public program, you cannot exclude religious organizations because then you are punishing a group or an individual simply for his or her faith or that group's faith. And so the court said essentially, Blaine amendments or these no aid provisions are at minimum, on shaky ground, and maybe more than that. But if you're going to have these kinds of programs and open up to nonprofits, you cannot exclude religious organizations.
0: I understand you say later in the piece that those, those Blaine Amendments, which I think a lot of people would think would be a part of a past era, a different, different culture, a certain view of Catholics, may in time recede. But right now, they may not for a while. What are these Blaine Amendments in terms of where they came from, and is their grip still real? How do you see the court potentially handling that? Tim,
1: too. Yeah, so I'll begin and then Tim, please correct me all the mistakes I make. And I have to say, like, as a Catholic, as someone who, like, my ancestors came to this country right as Blaine amendments were getting hot, like, this is kind of personal for me. So I tried to be dispassionate about it. Maybe I shouldn't be. The gist is there was a guy named James Blaine. He was ultimately the U.S. Speaker of the House of Representatives. There was a time in American history where there was mass immigration to the United States, many of whom were Catholics from a part of the world that was just different, had different traditions, different languages than a lot of people who were already in America at that time. So we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s. And so the U.S. Constitution almost had an amendment in it that would have prevented money from going to what they called sectarian institutions or schools, which is kind of code, not just for religious, but anti-Catholic as well. It didn't pass at the federal level, but it did pass at the state level in, depending on how you count it, 30 some different states. And the language differs state to state, but the gist is the state has a constitutional amendment that prohibits state benefits from going to religious organizations, particularly... particularly religious schools. Now, a lot of people have looked sideways at this for a long time saying, boy, that doesn't seem like that really is fair under the First Amendment. Whether the U.S. Supreme Court can undo what's in a state constitution, there are some interesting legal questions about that, but whether or not they can allow them those provisions to Actually, have weight in cases is what we ultimately saw in the Espinoza issue. And it comes down to this free expression issue. If you're going to have a government program, tax credits, or a grand program and say, this is open to everybody. So a boys and girls clubs, so a local PTA, a bowling league, Everyone except for a religious organization, which kind of the Blaine Amendment, no aid provision requires, then the U.S. Supreme Court now is in this position of saying, wait, that means that you're punishing a group just because it's religious. The First Amendment does not allow that. But these things remain on the books in 30-some states.
2: Yeah, I mean, my supplemental answer is that James Blaine, one of the most consequential Americans we've had who, who did not become president, he was a Speaker of the House when he was 39 years old. He was a secretary of state for three different presidents, and he was his party's nominee for president, lost uh, to Grover Cleveland in 1884. So really influential guy in the 20th century and a close ally of President Ulysses Grant in Reconstruction. So he did a lot of really good things. He was for the rights of black Americans to vote in the 1860s, immediately post-war. But he also, as part of the Grant administration, wanted the universalization of public education. And back to Andy's earlier point about monopolism, the big competition for that was the network of parochial schools, many of which were run by immigrants and most of them Catholic. And so this idea of the no aid provision was so popular that it passed the United States House of Representatives 180 to 7. Okay. But they didn't get enough overall support. And so they ended up just passing it through states. 38 out of 50 states have some form of a Blaine Amendment or had some form. Some of them are a little bit weaker than others, but really, as Andy says, they're in the 30s. And the way that they function now primarily is by being a state constitutional bar to any kind of school choice program or in some cases, government partnering with other faith-based entities like prisoner reentry programs or things like that. So that's kind of their history. I think uh, after Espinoza, which Andy has already addressed, I don't really know how many applications of Blaine Amendments in actual situations will comport with the United States Constitution. I think it's pretty hard to come up with an example of how they might be used. In a way that the court finds constitutional. So that's the short answer. I could give you a longer answer, but I think that's the short answer. Do you mind
1: if I get super wonky here? And please cut me off if this is way too in the weeds, but it's responsive to this very good question, which has been raised right after Espinoza, which is the U.S. Supreme Court didn't say Blaine amendments have to disappear, but what is left of them? And I've been noodling on this for a while. And if you read Espinoza, but also the couple dissents, you start to see the outlines maybe the penumbras and emanations of what could possibly happen, which relates to this decision from almost two decades ago called Locke that the Supreme Court had. So Locke v. Davy is that right? Exactly. So the distinction that the court relied on really in Trinity Lutheran and in Espinoza is what's called the distinction between status and use. And this becomes important because both in... Trinity Lutheran, which a state program was stopping a Lutheran church from accessing a program that would enable them to get money to resurface a playground. The Supreme Court overturned that program at the state level because it was excluding a church based on its status as being religious. Similarly, in Espinoza, the Montana program was excluding religious schools from participation because of their status as religious institutions. So I feel very, very confident that any of these state-level programs that try to bar groups from participating in something just because they are religious, that's no longer going to fly. But the Locke case is interesting because in that case, the Supreme Court okayed a state-level program. It was a state program that gave scholarships to students to go to college, and a student was allowed to go to a religious college. Under the program. What the student couldn't do is use that scholarship to pay for a religious program, like to become a minister, hence the distinction between status and use. So Notre Dame couldn't be excluded from that program because of its status, but the state was allowed to put a prohibition on the use of the money for a religious purpose. I'm wondering, so this is just a, for example, if Montana adheres to Espinoza, rewrites the law and comes back and says, okay, religious organizations, schools are allowed to participate in this program. They can get tuition tax credit scholarships. However, none of that money can be used for a religious purpose that money that's coming with the state benefit can be used for your facility, can be used for your playground, can be used for transportation, but it cannot be used for a religious purpose like instruction or textbooks. And this is really like Gorsuch's concurring opinion and Breyer's dissenting opinion all got into these kinds of questions. Like, where is the line? And that's the only grounds on which I think these things are going to be fought in the future, status and use.
0: So remind us then on where the court's principles seem to sit today, right? Because this is intention, as you say. It's a tension between First Amendment, you know, free exercise on the one hand and and establishment on the other. It's a tension based on some past decisions that have, have involved religious organizations. You put in your piece, Andy, Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza on the same side of the ledger Zelman, Hosanna-Tabor. On the other hand, you cite Lemon versus Kurtzman and Employment Division versus Smith and other other cases as well on the other side of the ledger. And I suspect that Tim has to sort of see
2: similar tensions in his in his work. So well, let, me, let me just tell you what I It's It's a pretty easy way to summarize the current state of the law. I think that if you have a generally available government program that is denied to a religious group when other secular nonprofits are able to get it, that is going to be unconstitutional. What is left uncertain, right? What is left uncertain is the question of whether or not funds for a particular religious use are constitutional or unconstitutional. And that goes to that case, Lock v. Davy, that Andy talked about. Here's what I suspect though. Those are cases, those are cases that are still going to have to be decided. It is clear. That Gorsuch and probably at least three other members of the court think Lock v. Davy was wrongly decided. And so Lock v. Davy is a little bit like employment division v. Smith. I don't think this court is likely to overturn either decision, but I also think that at least four and probably five members of this court dislike both decisions. And so to the degree that they are a tension, there is tension between these, these things, they're going to distinguish those earlier cases and sort of narrowly define their scope in favor of a a more pro-free exercise view of the Constitution. And of of course, I guess, as always, it's going to come down to what does Roberts want to do. And I think the reason I say those cases are unlikely to be ever overturned is because Roberts is such an institutionalist. He does not like to overturn prior precedents of the court. So I don't think Locke or Smith are that likely to be overturned, but I think that they're more likely to be read narrowly, and then it's all going to come down to what Roberts wants to do.
1: And I would probably put Kavanaugh in the Roberts boat, just because we don't know. So, reading through some of these decisions, it's pretty clear that there are, let's call it, three different camps. You have, or four camps. You have Sotomayor and Ginsburg, who generally are opposed to the kinds of things that we're talking about. They were the two votes. No, in Trinity Lutheran, they are much more open to building this wall between church and state, even if people like us would say there's a free expression concern here. So then on the other side of the spectrum, you have Alito, Gorsuch and Thomas, who almost certainly based on what they have written are much more in favor of like protecting religious liberty. Interestingly, you have Breyer and Kagan who voted yes in Trinity Lutheran, but no in Espinoza. So they enabled the court to have the 7-2 in Trinity, but then they went the other direction in Espinoza. And there's this famous or infamous footnote in Trinity Lutheran that probably was able to get their vote, which essentially said, yeah, it seems like we're making a big decision here on religious liberty, but we're only making a decision based on resurfacing playgrounds. And so that narrowness maybe captured them, but they weren't going to go along in the Espinoza case. And then you have these two other justices, Roberts and Kavanaugh. To Tim's point, Roberts is an institutionalist. He doesn't like to make big dramatic action. Kavanaugh did not sign on to any of the concurrences like what Alito did or Gorsuch. So I'm not totally sure where he stands on this. So unless there's some sort of change in the court's composition, you can rely on probably three justices being gung-ho on this, and then questions about where do Kavanaugh, Roberts, Kagan, and Breyer shake out
2: on the particular case.
1: Tim, does that sound about right to you?
2: Yeah, it sounds right. The only thing that I would say is I think Kavanaugh is very cautious about how he writes, but if you, if you look at the other context of how he thinks he's written in the church closure cases... He tends to have a very broad kind of McConnell-Laycock view of free exercise. So even though he may be careful about how he overrules prior decisions of the court, it's pretty clear to me that he has a very broad view of what the free exercise clause requires. And in that sense, he may be slightly different than, than Roberts.
0: That's really interesting. And I think in the school space and the religious use in public programs type space that Andy is describing, I mean, that same same tension seems to sit in some of the work that Tim is leading up with religious liberty. And I was looking back even today at Obergefell, and there's that line in 2015 from Kennedy who says that the First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faiths and to their deep aspirations to continue the family structure they have long revered. That is to say, when a major unfolding decision in the messy unfolding of history that we're all part is taking shape, and new rights, new privileges are given to certain communities in some sense alongside of others. The insistence that there is continuity, there's maintained religious freedom is also alive. Tim, in some ways, this most recent term seems to have had alternating spasms of anger and joy for people on the the religious liberty side of the aisle, bouncing back and forth across those on the opposing sort of ideological aisle. And I'm curious about how you see the current sort of tension sitting between between gay rights and religious freedom. I know you've done some work in that area. Where do those sides of the ledger cases sit? How do you view the court with respect to what Andy is describing in faith-based schools and your own work on the LGBTQ
2: rights question alongside churches and faith-based groups? You know, for about seven or eight years now, those like me who work in the religious freedom space have recognized that the biggest issues for your Catholic or evangelical school or charity have been this collision between religious freedom and LGBTQ freedom? Those are the questions of the day. And the Supreme Court has decided a few of these cases. They'll probably decide some more. Congress has not really acted in this area for a while. They're probably going to have to do some things too. Obviously, the administrative state at the state and federal level is always involved in these questions as well. But the way the law sits right now is as a result of the Bostock decision in the Supreme Court term. Under federal law, it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of LGBT status in employment. And it's very likely that that is going to be read to include housing as well. And that's then going to trickle through every part of the federal code that talks about discrimination on the basis of sex. Because what the court did in Bostock is said that it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex. But that sex also means sexual orientation and gender identity. That's their statutory interpretation. So I think that because both Roberts and Gorsuch were in that majority, and because Gorsuch was the one who wrote that uh, decision, if you support religious freedom, you need to recognize that that requires persuading people who also support LGBTQ rights. Okay? I mean, two justices at least who also support LGBTQ rights. What the court also did this term is they said that something called the ministerial exception, which they had first talked about back in 2013 in the Hosanna Tabor case, that the ministerial exception is farther than they had defined it previously. That if you're a teacher at a Catholic school, that you have some religious content, you don't have to be an actual minister, you don't even have to be a religion teacher, that the First Amendment prevents you from being subject to non-discrimination law at all, not just in the LGBTQ context, but in, in any context whatsoever. And then the court also, of course, gave the Espinoza outcome, which probably has implications down the line for, for these LGBTQ questions. And um, then the court also, in the Little Sisters of the Poor case, gave a win to the Little Sisters of the Poor, which I don't think has as much implication here. But I think the sum and substance of this is, is that as we sit here today, We have LGBTQ rights in all 50 states under federal law. The religious freedom questions have not been fully decided, but we have a pretty good hunch that at least four members of the court, and that includes Gorsuch, are likely to find for religious freedom in almost any foreseeable conflict between these two goods. And then the question comes down to Roberts. What does Roberts think? And then I think that we can have a lot of further discussion about this, but I'd say that's where the law stands today.
0: And in that unfolding, what was the kind of coming across dynamic with the justices that Andy just just mentioned? I mean, do I remember right? Kagan joined on the Our Lady of Guadalupe case, right? She came across with Justice Breyer to do so. Yep, yep. But on, on Bostock, you had Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch, as you just said, coming across to honor the non-discrimination protections to gay and, and transgender Americans. What does this sort of coming across tell you about the dynamics for the
2: court? Well, it's, it probably says two things. One of them is speculative and one of them is less speculative. So on the, on the non-speculative side, I think it says that some, percentage, some members of the court, that center block that Andy referred to earlier, seem to both believe in pretty expansive definitions of LGBT rights and also at least some pretty vigorous protection for religious freedom. That is, there are very few people in the extreme sort of Sotomayor Ginsburg camp that sort of always find or almost always find against religion in these cases. So that's that's kind of the heartening view, right, that there is some center block that have a view that both of these things are, are good and that they need to be protected. I think that the the more speculative view is that the justices are horse trading a little bit, that they are doing what what might we might call a judicial version of what some call the Utah Compromise, which in 2015, the state of Utah became the first sort of red state to pass a law that both very vigorously protected uh, religious freedom, but also protected LGBT people from discrimination. That's a very red Republican state. It also was a state, though, where the leading religion dwarfs the size of all others, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the, that church has a view of pluralism, because of their particular history of having suffered persecution, that it's not entirely clear that most, quote unquote, conservative American religion yet has. I mean, I, I'm a big supporter of the Utah law. It's, it's worked really well for five years there. But I think it may very well be that the judges are doing kind of some similar thinking. But that's a little more speculative.
0: I wonder if we can flip back to, to Andy a little bit, because in a way, the school choice discussion requires compromise between those with a high view of public schools and what they mean and do for kids on the one hand and those who have sacrificially given of their lives to create sectarian parallel schools. Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, evangelical, and so forth. So there's a sort of compromise asked for there. And similarly, on the gay rights, religious liberty question, there's a compromise that's going to be playing out probably in the next next decade for us as well. Andy, you've been researching schools so broadly uh, throughout your career. You've been president of the Maryland State Board of Education. What is the value of faith-based schools out there as you see it with respect to sort of public order, public
1: flourishing? Yeah, well... It depends on whether or not you believe in this American experiment and communities of communities and Burke and Tocqueville and localism. And I happen to believe in that stuff. There's another Supreme Court case from almost 100 years ago that's pretty famous, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where during the progressive era, a number of states decided, again, they didn't like all these immigrants, especially non-English speaking immigrants. So through a couple different mechanisms, they were going to try to get all kids to go to public schools, which were at that time quietly Protestant, but used a certain kind of Bible and certainly taught English. And the U.S. Supreme Court got involved at the very end of this and said, no, you just can't do that. Kids are more than just the wards of the state. There are familiar rights here. And because of that, there are community rights as well. And so in America, at least the America, as I've always understood it, you know, a diverse continental republic. We recognize that there are different people with different beliefs who have different principles and try to realize the good life in different ways. And liberalism isn't just about technocrats or elites broadly defining liberty and forcing everybody to live underneath the same kind of rules. It's creating the kind of space so different kinds of people can decide what the good life looks like and what are the best strategies for that passing on their culture and heritage and language and making different decisions on everything from zoning laws to alcohol sales to prostitution, gambling, add whatever else it is. And so that's the wind up to this question of private schools, faith based schools, different types of schools are just the way that different kinds of communities can say We want to pass on our traditions or we want to have control over our neighborhoods and our next generation in these kinds of ways. And you don't have to have animus towards the public education system. I mean, frankly, I send all of my kids to our local public school. I think there's great value to longstanding institutions of democratic control, small school districts. I think that's wonderful. I think Tocqueville and Burke and others would love that. But at the same time, that can exist in parallel to groups of people, minority groups of people who can say, not just racial minorities, whatever kind of minority, who can say, I understand that there's a democratically legitimate result being realized and acted upon by our local school district, and certain things are being taught in those schools. I happen not to agree with them, and I want to be part of a different type of school system, whether it's Catholic or Montessori or whoever knows what else. So it's the way that we can see America as a patchwork nation, a set of communities this is what e pluribus unum is ultimately about. You don't get to the unum by forcing people there. The unum is actually a reflection of their different people in different ways who come together under this big tent of democratic liberalism, but that includes pluralism and differences. We are one, not in spite of, but because we're allowed to be different.
2: I think that's great. Look, I think I think this question of pluralism, which is a kind of wonky, you know, think tanky word that maybe needs a slight rebranding, but I think the idea of pluralism is really one of the great questions before the country right now. We have such 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 negative partisanship. We have such tribalism, and the question is, can pluralism work in a context like that? And I think that we, you have very very few national figures. Arthur Brooks is one of them, but you have very few national figures who are promoting a kind of robust vision of pluralism. It seems like the trajectory is is in other directions, but I'm hopeful still ultimately because I think it's kind of the best way of dealing with this kind of diversity that we have here.
0: And as these questions are arbitrated, you know, the term juristocracy I see sometimes bandied about that because Congress is so broken and isn't stepping up on some of these cases. I know the the fairness for all legislation prospect didn't seem to get much traction, but that's true on a host of other areas as well right now. And and sort of why the court steps in is in the time when we're all thinking about casting the ballot, pulling the lever for one candidate versus the other. Should that hinge on the importance of the next round of Supreme Court nominees as we think about, you know, it's now gay rights and religious liberty, not either or. So as the court plays a role there, how should we think about voting and the role of the legislature
1: versus the court? Let me take – maybe it's an orthogonal direction on, uh, on that question, but it implicates something that Tim said earlier that I think is important, which is uh, this question of compromise. But who's doing the compromising and how do we get there? And the court has, over the past number of years, led us to this position of compromise and accommodation where they're simultaneously expanding rights – And expanding our sense of religious liberty. So they are deciding we want to expand rights in all these different types of domains, but we're going to create space or protect the space for religious communities to opt out of that. And I think the court probably believes with this group in the middle of the court, which includes Kagan and Roberts, that this is the best way to proceed but a question here is like who is left out of that like is that the kind of compromise that every different community would want to make so i went back and read the sutton decision this is the appeals court decision in the oberfeld before it got to the supreme court and he began his decision by saying this is a case about change and how best to handle it under the United States Constitution. And then in the Bostock decisions, Alito in his dissent began it by saying there is only one word for what the court has done today, colon, legislation. And then Kavanaugh wrote, like many cases in this court, this case boils down to one fundamental question, who decides? So all of these judges are raising the same question, which is what is the extent to which we are going to allow our political branches, democratic communities to litigate and adjudicate these things? And in what instances must the court get involved because certain democratic decisions are illegitimate? But at least I wanted to raise these three judges saying the same thing in different ways, which is, is this the kind of instance where the court has to make a national decision for all of us? Or is this the kind of case where people in different neighborhoods and communities should elect different types of people to reach different often conflicting outcomes on these things. And that is really the question here. To what extent do we think that this is a matter of liberty defined by courts and they do the compromising, or do we have to get into the public square and demonstrate civic virtue and accommodation and compromise and civility and figure out how we're going to navigate this stuff ourselves? That's the question, I think, for the future.
0: And is that playing out beyond the courts as well? I mean, I think I've heard you talk about bubbling and tents in different school fields to, to run the next wave of, of 7th through 12th grade education or or the like. How do you think about federalism with respect to those same precepts that you're talking about?
1: Are you talking about like the pandemic pods and like what's happened? Yeah. Well, listen, for the past 30 years, states have decided that families— Need to have more rights to create their own types of school options and to choose different types of options. and that was proceeding a pace. Often slowly, but gradually, we went from one voucher program to three voucher programs. Now there are 60 plus private school choice programs. We went from Minnesota having a charter school law to California and Michigan and D.C., and now virtually all states have charter school laws. So this was just happening. We were getting more acclimated to the idea of states being able to redefine public education as a wide array of providers providing different types of schools underneath this aegis of public education. And then suddenly the pandemic happens and the public schools that, I don't know, 90% of families rely on aren't going to be open. And so we put into hyperdrive this question of pluralism and difference and autonomy And families are left on their own often to decide, do we want to do online learning? Do we want to do a homeschool? Do we want to do this new kind of pandemic pod, which is a micro kind of school? Do we want to choose a private school? And so this is one of those cases where the theory and the practice had been developing over time. We had some sense of what this could look like. And then The universe intervenes and says, yeah, this can no longer be a small 10%, 15%, 20% sideshow. 100% of families are going to have to deal with these kinds of questions. And I'll be in a better position six months from now to tell you what this all looks like. But at least we had a head start on homeschooling, microschooling, private schooling, vouchers, tax credits, education savings accounts. We beta tested some of this and now it's going to go to
2: scale. Well, look, Andy, I felt like the future of school choice in this country, you know, rested in part on the neutering of Blaine amendments. And I think they have been neutered, um, at least in their most pernicious impacts by Espinoza. And I wondered if you sort of were giving your best prognostication on how school choice as public policy will will expand or, or stay the same in the next five to 10 years. I wonder what your thoughts about that were.
1: Well, conceptually, Espinoza was big and neutering or undermining Blaine is big. But at this point, the number of states where Blaine was the ultimate inhibition to the creation of a private school choice program is relatively small. So we're likely, I mean, if I had to bet, I would say in the next say, three years, five states are going to be able to use Espinoza to create a private school choice program, and they will create a private school choice program, that they had been hindered because of federal and state court decisions. Even though the political branches wanted to do private school choice, they couldn't because of the court cases. Now Blaine opens up that door, and they will. But that does not mean that a bunch of other states... It means that states can do it, but that doesn't mean that Massachusetts suddenly is going to create. No, a no, of course not.
2: I mean, in my world, though, working as I do in state legislatures, if you tell me that such a major policy change is going to happen in five states in three years, that's actually quite a bit. Like in the math that I use, the, I, I think of that as a lot. And the reason I do the whole laboratories of democracy idea: once you get more evidence of whether a policy works or doesn't, now you have ten percent of our states, additionally, that suddenly are experimenting essentially with this new policy. Evidence for efficacy or for for it not being very effective uh, is going to either go up or 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 down, and we'll, we'll know in ten years or so. So that that strikes me as being, you know, at least a double, maybe not a home run, but at least a double
1: for sure. And the even more the thing that could be the home run is whether or not a, a future set of court decisions ends up deciding that it is unconstitutional for states to maintain a charter school program that is entirely secular. Um, It is not inconceivable. I would put it at like one in three, the chance that religious charter schools become a thing in some number of states. So without going into too many gory details, most states ban religious groups from starting charter schools. They are just banned from being the applicants. That probably has to go away because Espinoza. So a religious group could start a charter school. But because of state and federal laws, that charter school, although it was run by a religious group, would still have to be secular. This then implicates the Gorsuch concurring opinion and some other things, which is maybe the status use distinction is false. And if you were going to allow the little sisters of the poor to run a charter school, to tell them that they can run it, but they can't have faith in the school, would essentially be saying you have religious freedom, but really you can't act on it. And so there are probably some states that could pass a law that would expand charter schooling to include religious groups and even religious charter schools. There could be some lawsuits about this. So this isn't like on our doorstep, but five years from now, I am certain there will be litigation on this. And that could be the game changer. In Espinosa, if I'm not mistaken, and don't quote me on this, but Justice Roberts in his decision said something along the lines of, Montana didn't have to create a private school choice program, but once it did, it could not exclude religious groups from it. It's possible that there is a, a Supreme Court decision where he says something like, a state does not have to create a charter school program, but once it does, it cannot exclude religious groups from running charter schools. Again, one in three, one in four chance, but that would be that would be a game changer.
2: Yeah, makes total sense.
0: Well, Tim and Andy, thanks again for being with us today. A lot to chew on. We'll link to a number of your pieces in the show notes and look forward to seeing you the next time
2: around. Great to be with you. Thanks, gentlemen.
0: Faith Angle exists to connect journalists and scholars to real-time unfolding religious dynamics, including in public life. Thanks for listening.